Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our Christmas series, The Hope of the Ages, with a message entitled, Christ Greater Than John. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Well, Christmas is at hand, and as is the custom this time of the year, we're called upon to remember the events surrounding the birth of our Savior. You know, this Christmas season, I've chosen to do something that, at least for me, is unique. I have been wanting to highlight the greatness of the child that was born to us. I've contrasted him to some of the greatest men of the Bible, and for that matter, of human history. I've tried to make the point that it is too easy when making the case for greatness to make that case using as a contrast someone who is less than great. That is, we all say, well, he's a lot greater than the religious leaders of his day or the politicians of his day or greater than the, you know, religious leaders and politicians of our day. But I've said that doesn't make the case for greatness. Rather, let's contrast Jesus with the greatest men who have ever lived. I have chosen last of all the contrasts, the contrast Jesus to John the Baptist. And it's Jesus' assessment of John the Baptist that fascinates me. Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So let's start with the obvious conundrum, shall we? Why is it, if John is so great, that anyone who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John? I mean, what can that mean? Well, I think Jesus was contrasting John's birth with a new birth. That is, John was born in the way that all human beings are born. He's born of a woman. But those who are part of the kingdom of heaven have entered into it in a different way. Now, I mention this only to explain the saying, but let's get back to the earlier part of the sentence. No one born of woman is greater than John. So how so? Because within God's sovereign design, no one in all human history has ever played a greater role than the role John played. What John did makes the role of Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Isaiah seem like a small role indeed. For the role of John the Baptist, this greatest of all men, was to usher Jesus onto the public stage, and that was an extremely difficult role to play. Let's back up and consider the comparison between John the Baptist and Jesus. So let's start at the place where the Bible does at the birth of both of them. Luke begins the Christmas story not with the story of Mary and Joseph, but with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were an elderly, childless couple. Luke, being a physician, tells us where the difficulty lay. Elizabeth was barren, and both her and her husband were now well advanced in years. So then, let's let Luke tell the account. Luke 1, 5-7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Yeah, in those days, there was an old couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They belonged to the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe in Israel. And that meant that Zechariah was a priest. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth loved God. They were involved in ministry. Both were distinguished by their godliness. But Elizabeth was barren, and now she'd been through menopause and well beyond. She simply had to accept it. She would never know the joy of having children. 
It's difficult to overemphasize the heartache behind the words in verse 7. Childlessness in those days was not a choice. It was considered a reproach or a curse. One wonders what might have been said to Elizabeth throughout her lifetime. The looks, the comments, even the pity of others, well, that must have cut like a knife. One wonders also how many times Zechariah and Elizabeth had bent their knees in prayer, but like the ancient prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, no answer, nothing, only the silence of God. I wonder if you've ever noticed that all the great actions of God happen in impossible situations. And that's how we should begin the Christmas story. It's a story against all odds. It's a story that can only be explained by a miracle. So here's what happened. Zechariah was on duty in the temple, and here I'm reading Luke 1, 8 to 10. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Well, that might not strike you as very interesting. I mean, after all, he was a priest, and I mean, what else do priests do but hang out in the temple and pray? But what happened that day was really quite remarkable because there were so many priests in that day, it's estimated that there were some 18,000 of them, and they couldn't all serve. So the priests were divided into 24 divisions, and that would mean 750 priests in each division. And each division would serve the temple two weeks a year, I know that only makes 48 weeks, but you'd have to leave time for the major festivals, well, like Passover. Now, if you were a priest, you would be called to serve twice a year. And when your priestly division was on to serve in Jerusalem, remember, there are at least 750 of you, you'd be involved in the daily offering. And every day, two priests would be selected, one in the morning, one in the evening, and these two men would enter the holy place of the temple and offer incense as a part of a preparation for sacrificial offering. And the burning of incense would symbolize prayer. One priest with the incredible duty of praying for God's people before the evening or morning sacrifice. Now, who gets to do this since there are 750 of you? Well, the answer is you'd cast lots. It's like throwing a dice to see who gets it. And once your name was chosen, you'd be taken off the list and you'd never get a chance to do it again. In short, this was a great honor that came once in your lifetime. And this was that once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zechariah. It would have been the high point of his entire priestly career. He would have put on special priestly clothing symbolizing purity. His preparations would have started about 2.30 in the afternoon. About an hour later, 3.30, that was the time of evening prayers. People would have gathered at the temple for evening prayers. And for the first time, and the only time in his life, Zechariah would have entered into the holy place, carrying incense to the place of the altar, and ready as God's chosen man for the day to plead with God on behalf of Israel. And as he entered, one can only imagine his emotions that one day of his life, he would have noticed that on his left, there would have been the golden lampstand with its light illuminating the otherwise dark temple, reminding him that it was God who was the light of the world. On his right was the table of showbread, a table of pure gold with bread of the presence on its top. And in front of him was the golden altar of incense right in front of the curtain that guarded the entrance into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter there. Anyone else would have been killed. And so Zechariah came as close as he would in his whole lifetime to the place of ultimate holiness. And I imagine him trembling. Luke 1, 11 to 13. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Well, since we know that this was Zechariah's moment, that once in a lifetime in which he was ministering in the holy place all alone, that what happened next, well, it frightened him half to death. Zechariah looks to his right in the direction of the golden table of showbread. And there was a strong and powerful figure, a great and mighty man, and he's suddenly aware it's an angel. He's terrified. You see, all through the Bible, angels are terrifying beings. It was the angel that killed the firstborn of Egypt. It was an angel that David had seen with his outstretched hand over Jerusalem, and it filled David with such fear that he had begged for mercy. And here now, in this holy place, in the midst of prayer, stands an angel. And Zechariah is shocked for other reasons as well. You know, have you been in a room by yourself and you're convinced you're alone only to suddenly find someone is standing there? It scares you half to death. But he's double shocked, for he immediately sees this being is not a man. One of God's terrifying mighty angels stands there. And of course, the angel has a word. Your prayer has been heard. Yeah, it may seem as if all those long years God had been silent, but he wasn't. He has chosen this very moment Elizabeth will bear you a son. And then in Luke 1, 15, the angel tells Zechariah, he will be great before the Lord. What more could a godly man ask for than that his child would be great before the Lord? And then more, he will turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will lead a national revival that will change the nation's heart. But still there's more. He will go before him. And here it gets curious. It's not told at least not explicitly, before whom he will go. But whoever he is, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Oh my, Elijah, the one who would usher in the messianic age. Zechariah, the angel seems to be saying, your son will usher in the long-awaited age of the Messiah. As Christmas is upon us, my thoughts of the Holy Land are magnified. I begin to reflect upon the stories of Jesus' birth, life, sacrifice, and ultimate glorification more closely. And in so doing, my anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Israel experience grows. There we walk the paths and places that bring the stories of the Bible to life. As time draws close, we invite you to join us for this adventure April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Games Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back of the Bible Canada team. The full itinerary is available online, but space is limited, and we're nearing capacity, so register soon. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash events. So what does the old man do when the angel tells him this splendid news? Well, he says, how shall I know this is true? I mean, after all, you might not know it. Listen, my wife and I are actually quite old. Oh, just when we were expecting a triumphant response, he gives this, unbelief. And in response, Zechariah becomes mute, unable to speak. But the story goes on. 
Elizabeth is now pregnant for six months. For the first five months, she's kept to herself, and most would not have known. But now it's the sixth month, and there's no keeping the matter private. Who would have believed that an old woman would be bearing a son? And it's during this same sixth month that the very same angel that had appeared to Zechariah, Gabriel, now he appears to Mary. He approaches her and says, Greetings, O favored one. It's a very important greeting. You know, there are those who have misunderstood what Gabriel said. You know, some have thought that Mary was full of grace. That is, that she, as a being full of grace, is in a position to dispense grace to others. Well, that's a mistranslation. She's not full of grace. Rather, according to verse 30 of chapter 1, she has found favor with God. Or to put it another way, she has found grace. That is, she's not someone who's in a position to hand out grace. Rather, she's in a position to receive grace. It's so important. Mary is not sinless. Indeed, the very greeting she receives tells us she needs grace. All sinners do. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. She's not earned the right to be the mother of our Lord. Rather, in his boundless grace, God has chosen her. He's graced her. He's favored her to be the mother of our Lord. She's the recipient of amazing grace. The unique grace given to Mary is that she will bear a son, and he is to be called Jesus. And then just like Zechariah was told, in relation to his son John, Mary is told the same, he will be great. You know, it's sometimes the case that generations go by without having a single great man or woman. But now two children conceived within six months of each other, both will be great. But unlike John, who will lead a national revival, Jesus, on the other hand, will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary's troubled. You remember that Zechariah, too, is troubled. Zechariah said, look, how can this be? I, I and my wife are old. And Mary says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. But whereas Zechariah is rebuked for his unbelief, Mary is not. It seems Zechariah didn't think it was possible, but Mary wondered how this miracle would be accomplished. Zechariah responded in unbelief. Mary responds in curiosity. The difference between the two is obvious. Mary is then told that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her, and thus, because of the uniqueness of this act, the child will be called the Son of God. Mary is told that Elizabeth, her relative, that old woman is pregnant. And then the angel adds, nothing will be impossible with God. That is, both children were born because of God's miraculous hand. Now, it's here that Luke tells us for the first time that Mary and Elizabeth are related. Well, I'm not going to get into all the details as to how they were related, but we're not told how close the relationship were. If it were first cousins or fourth cousins, we don't know. Let's not get diverted by that. But we do know that both children have miraculous origins. Now, after having shown us the similarities, Luke again wants to show us a contrast. Luke 1, 39 to 44. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. That's quite an encounter. Zechariah had been told that his son would be filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit communicates with an unborn and developing child, but it must have been that when Mary entered into the home of Elizabeth, that the Holy Spirit communicated joy to John that 
reaction of the child, that impulse, that energy that he exhibits is pure joy. And Elizabeth recognized what's going on in her womb, and she responds. You have to imagine Elizabeth's own joy at being pregnant, but not just that. She had been given prophecies about her son. He will be great. He will usher in the messianic age. He will be the fulfillment of the prophecies of an Elijah-like figure at the end of the age. He will lead a national revival. Elizabeth's mind must have been constantly thinking about the son that she carried in her womb. And when Mary enters the room, all thoughts about her son suddenly vanish. And at that moment, she's filled with the Holy Spirit, and she greets Mary, not by saying, How are you? How are your parents? You know, how are your wedding plans going? How are the crops in your part of the country? I mean, nothing of that kind, nothing that we consider normal conversation. Rather, in step with the Holy Spirit, she says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. That is to say, of all the women who have ever borne a child, the blessing of God that's upon you is greater than any woman has ever known. And then Elizabeth adds one more sentence that must have made Mary wonder. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You know, that word is Lord, the Greek word kurios. And in Hebrew, the word was often used as a substitute for God. See, not only has the Holy Spirit communicated joy to John, but the Holy Spirit has communicated knowledge and understanding to Elizabeth. It is as if Elizabeth would say, the child I am bearing is indeed great. But as you entered my house, his greatness, the one of your child, has eclipsed my son, because yours is the son of God. But still, Elizabeth is not done. She seems to say, as great an honor as has been afforded to me, that in my old age I would bear greatness in my womb, I behold you, Mary, the one who immediately believed that the child you have received is the fulfillment of the promises of God, the promise that we have longed for since the beginning of the human race. See, let's fast forward now. John and Jesus are now in their 30s. John has been conducting meetings. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Great crowds of people are coming from Jerusalem and from all the surrounding regions to hear this man preach. His message is simple. Repent, he says. Turn from your sins that you've clung to for your lifetime. Renounce them utterly. There's no time to delay. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the crowds are asking him, what shall we do if we're going to repent? And for one, John says, it's time to stop greed in Israel. Open your wallets. Share with those who have needs. And then the tax collectors ask him what they do. And he talks to them about justice and fairness and turning from their overtaxation policies that they have used to line their own pockets. Even Roman soldiers are coming to him, wanting to know how they might repent. No one in all Israel had seen such a mighty turning to God. The great revivals in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra were dwarfed by what was happening under the preaching of John. But it's the next message of John that stunned the crowd. Luke 3, 15 and 16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so at the height of his popularity, John began a program of deliberately dismantling his successful ministry. He kept pointing to Jesus. Look, he said, the Lamb of God, not me, not me, follow him. John 3, 26 to 30 says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. 
John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John testified that as great as he knew he was, he was not the one to be followed. Follow him, he said, not me. He kept pointing to Jesus. Now, that's the testimony of the greatest man who ever lived. When he saw Jesus, he recognized that I am not fit to untie his sandals. And when we celebrate Christmas, I would hope that we would have the same witness that John has. The child that is born to us, the son that has been given, the Christ who has been born, none of us are fit to untie his sandals. We are all unworthy of him, but he has come. The only one who is full of grace has come to dispense grace to us. This is the testimony of the greatness of Jesus. This is the Christmas story. Let's rejoice. The greatest man who has ever lived, indeed, the very Son of God, has been born to us. Let us repent of our sins and come humbly to him. John, thanks for a great series. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, as a final question, something incredibly profound about Christmas. But let me ask you this instead, something more basic. What would you wish for our listeners to know, given the uniqueness of our times, about the arrival of Jesus? Well, I think, you know, it sounds in many ways less than profound as well, what I'm about to say. But, you know, unto us, a Savior has been born. Let's remember that we are lost in sin and that Christ looked at our lost estate and recognized that we were incapable of saving ourselves, but that he, out of great love for us, has sent us a great Savior, the child that was born in the manger, that lived among us, and that suffered so greatly, and then died on the cross for us. This child came so that he would save people from their sins. You know, it's a time to revel in the love of God. It's a time to revel that God has not given us what we deserved. Rather, he has given us what we didn't deserve, mercy, grace, and acceptance before him. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Ben Lowell, and on behalf of the entire ministry team at Back to the Bible Canada, In Doubt and Laugh Again, I want to extend our thoughts and prayers that you and your family would experience a blessed Christmas. Perhaps this Christmas I've been more reflective than others. Perhaps it's the common circumstance we've shared for nearly two years. All that has taken place in our communities, country, in fact, around the world, has reminded us that this world is filled with chaos, much beyond our control. But there is one whom I'm privileged to know, the same one who came to offer a sure and lasting hope, and that because of his arrival, sacrifice, and victory is now preparing a place where the pain and confusion of this world will pass. In the meantime, what a great news we have to share. Jesus is the hope of the ages. 
Merry Christmas.